This is the Silver Linings Handbook Podcast. I'm Jason Blair. Friends, we made it through another year, 2023. This year, like many, brought some challenges, a lot of rewards, and a ton of learning. I had the idea, here in our first year, of looking through our Silver Linings Handbook podcast episodes to see what messages we heard from our guests that enlightened us and challenged us to think through many complicated issues that we grapple with as humans. There were moments of hope, clarity, and inspiration in so many people who are trying to make the world a better place. I will be reflecting on 2023 through the lens of our guests and our listeners. At the end of 2022, we came up with the idea for this podcast. It was some of my colleagues at work who originally came up with the idea and helped me bring it to fruition. The original idea can be attributed in part to one of our 2023 guests, Lisa Cruel, who suggested a podcast would be a way to bring the joys and beauties of coaching and the mental health work I've been doing to a broader world at no cost to them. Other guests like Brittany Lawhorn were instrumental in developing the ideas and finding our amazing producer, Alyssa Miller. So by December of 2022, we had come up with the idea of a podcast focused on the work we do in mental health and leadership development. We decided to focus on psychology in the workplace. We thought it would be a great area to explore. But by our second episode, it was clear that the podcast was about something deeper than just that. Instead of conversations about psychology in the workplace, we found that it was conversations from our guests that inspired many of our listeners. In the second episode with Jerry Colonna, an executive coach and the former head of a venture capital firm in New York, we had initially thought we would discuss leadership, venture capital, and altruism, but it expanded into a much deeper conversation about the traumas of childhood, the difficulties of coming of age, racial and sexual orientation discrimination, and how adversity shapes us and provides opportunities to us. Jerry talked about growing up in a house with an alcoholic father and a mentally ill mother, having to listen to his father's footsteps when he came home from work to figure out what he should do. What it was like was that it, I grew up with questioning safety, questioning reality. I was just on a call with a coaching client where we were talking about he too had a mother who is mentally ill. And the difficulty of grasping what's real and what's not real, right? That constant sense of gaslighting. And, you know, for me, it created, on a positive side, it created what I often refer to as a hypervigilance, mm. where I read rooms. And that made me a very, I don't know if you remember this, but I was a reporter too once. Yeah. It made me a very good reporter. It made me a very good investor. And it makes me an exceedingly good coach because I feel people. Yep. It because was a safety mechanism. Yeah, you yeah. had to, to survive. Yeah. Jerry also talked about the positives that came from that and how it guides his executive coaching. And that book looks at the question of what a leader's responsibility as it is, as it relates to creating a sense of belonging within an organization. 
And part of my assertion is that we all, all, all of us who hold power, to whatever the degree of power we hold, have a moral and ethical responsibility to lean into what I call systemic belonging, to over, overcome systemic othering, systemic racism. And, and that part of that process is coming to understand what you just described, Jason, which is that ancestral lineage, understanding what was their experience and really internalizing that and, and drawing strength from that, uh, turning what I call our ancestors into elders and, and being able to draw upon them so that, you know, in the long dark nights of the soul that we all tend to experience, we can reach back and hear them. In one of our early episodes, we also talked to another executive coach, John Mitchell. We talked to him about belonging and how his nickname, The Purple Coach, developed and how it impacted his views on law and justice. So it's a little bit of a story. The The purple part of Purple Coach um, is a really important symbol for me. So when I was a very young child, uh, my brother and I, I've got a brother who's 18 months younger than me. We were growing up in a military family. My father was a career military officer. My dad is black. My mom is white. And so in the military, everything has a label. And we were officers' kids, and we were also black kids. And those are just two of the labels that were commonly applied to us. And we kind of got used to those labels. So fast forward a few years, and my father is sending my brother and I to spend parts of the summer with his mother in Roxbury, Massachusetts, a black community in Boston. And the kids there would tell my brother and I that we were white kids or that we were Oreos, black on the outside, white on the inside. And that would be very, very confusing to us. We're like, wait a minute. Every day we're told we're black kids. And then suddenly we're in this environment. We're told we're either white kids or Oreos. Like, what's going on? So fast forward a few more years, getting into our teenage years, and, and me in particular, trying to you know figure out my own sense of identity and you know who am I and how do I differentiate myself from from my parents like all teenagers do John also explained the risk of not creating a sense of belonging among lawyers well, I think that you know one of the most important things to remember about the the profession is I, I truly think it is a great profession I'm proud to be a lawyer I don't practice law anymore I haven't practiced in a really really long time uh, and yet I still retain a law license and I still do continuing legal education and I do think it's a very important profession it is the key to many of our freedoms and privileges in this country and I think that you know one of the big challenges that we don't understand when we look at TV is that right now the very wealthy are very well served by the legal profession. The destitute are somewhat well served by the profession. And this huge group in the middle, from you know the working class to maybe the, the middle class, are actually left out in many instances of the legal process and, and legal opportunities. And I think that's something that the profession is working on. It's not like this is news to them profession knows. Lots of people are talking about this. But this whole idea of access to justice is not about the poorest of the poor. It's about folks that are definitely up on a higher income level. And I think that's one of those things that as we think about the profession, uh, we want to keep thinking about how do we solve for that so that we can truly be a democracy uh, and a justice system that works for everybody, no matter where you fall on the spectrum 
that work for everybody, as opposed to those at the very lowest ends and those at the very highest end. And hopefully we're going to do that. We also explored race, gender, and sexual orientation in several episodes. Retired Vice Admiral Raquel Bono told us about the impact of her father's belief in her and how it helped her become one of the first women to get a senior position in the defense medical services. Vice Admiral Bono became a burn surgeon in the Navy and became the first woman to lead the $50 billion military health system. And that was when my father said, you know, why don't you want to become a doctor? And I told him, I said, I didn't know girls could be doctors. And, and he told me, he said, you can be, you can be anything. And, he, you know, uh, after I had dinner with him that night, you know, I went to bed and all I could remember from that was he told my dad, my father telling me that I could be anything. And I grew up with that. That became my my mantra. I'm now now I'm the eldest of two brothers and and a sister. And I don't think my brothers really appreciated the fact that you know I was going to be empowered. I became empowered. I became activated in that moment. And and uh, you know it was from that pivotal moment where I I believed that you know I could do I could do anything. And more importantly that my father, my mother as well, believed I could do anything, really set in motion a lot of different efforts that I came to realize in different ways. And so each at each time that I, I would be making a decision or, or, make, or considering what I was going to do next, I never saw it through the lens of, of whether I could do something or not. It was more along the lines of, you know, do I want to do this and how well do I want to do it? And that's what, what kind of drove me through it. Jillian Orr, a woman who came out as a lesbian on the stage of her graduation from Brigham Young University, a Mormon church school that doesn't support LGBTQ rights in personhood, talked to us about the importance of being who we are. Yeah, and that's what's so, it's what, it's so crazy because our deepest desire is to be loved. Our deepest, that's why everybody does what they do. You know, everyone just wants to be loved for who they are, but they're afraid that if they show people who they are, that they're not going to be loved. So they don't show people who they are. And so they in turn create it for themselves where they don't feel that they're loved for who they are because they don't put themselves out there and they're not vulnerable enough to show people that. And so it's a scary risk and I get it. But if we really do want to be loved for who we are and what we have to offer the world, we just have to choose that confidently and choose to love ourselves. And then people will show up and those who will love us will be able to see who we are. They will see it and then they can love it. We explored religion in three episodes with the Reverend John Cleghorn, the leader of a progressive Presbyterian church in Charlotte, North Carolina, with Greg Ligon, the survivor of a cult in Northern Virginia, and with Jillian. Jillian talked to us about the conflict of her acceptance of the fact that she was a lesbian and the conflict created with her religious views. Yeah. 
you know, it's a painful process because you have to grieve. I had to grieve something I loved. I had to grieve something that was safe for me that no longer was safe. And it was hard because I felt for the longest time that I had to pick between my sexuality and my spirituality. And that was really painful. But through the process, I realized that my relationship with God doesn't belong to the church and my spirituality doesn't belong to the church. And so when I started to allow things to die out in my life and to say, thank you for what you've given me, but I no longer need to believe in you or I no longer need this in my life has been really freeing in a beautiful way. And there's grief with it, but it's very beautiful to be able to open my heart. And I can honestly tell you that I have felt closer to God and to humanity in general. I felt so much more compassionate towards other people than I used to. Greg talked to us about how being traumatized and suffering opens a window to help others. About not terribly long before I met you, there was I was also working with a, a therapist. And after hearing my story, she said, you seem lost. And that's exactly how I felt. And so to, to get from there to here, I, it was a journey. But the things that helped me were my wife, my family, my community, and reaching out to other people. One of the, the hallmarks of, if you want to call it religious trauma sy syndrome, and I happen to think that that's an apt title, that feeling of, I've been through something that no one else has been through and nobody understands. Well, I'm here to tell you, a lot of people have been through what you have, and they do understand, and they they need you and you need them. I don't think I got through these things alone. I think of those Presbyterian ministers that I, I was a member of who told me, you didn't know the half of it. Actually, Calvary Temple was even worse than you know, and here's why, and here are facts that prove it. That helped me immensely to to meet people who had been through trials and who could also help me. I didn't recover by myself. I wasn't alone. And you won't recover by yourself. You need friends. You need a group. You need therapy. And don't be ashamed of any of those things. You need those things. And they they will help. And you will heal, even if it takes a long time. I spoke to the Reverend Cleghorn about my own experiences with religion. In my lowest times in my life, who came rushing back, but people, you know, who grew up with me, who were my peers, who grew up in church, and they've always been there, but that loss of community, I guess, was hard. And I guess what you're saying just gives me a little bit more hope because what my fear is, my fear is I walk into the church door and I hear something or something happens. It's almost like it's PTSD. And then my fear is that I would never even consider going back again. He spoke about how the church needs to change. The decline gets steeper with every generation. There's a great reckoning that is underway in organized religion and therefore the church. We are having that rummage sale that will take a generation or two or three, and the church will never be the same again. And I, you know, maybe God's at work in that to, to shake us up. Time will tell. But 
you're absolutely right that you know, different aspects of the church have become very homophobic, very aligned with some of the ugliest parts of politics in America right now, you know, overtly approving of white Christian nationalism. They're fairly open about it. There's a middle part of the church that up until recently had all it ever needed and didn't push itself, didn't embrace risk, uh, did not stretch itself, maybe wasn't politically conservative, but conserved resources rather than planting new seeds. And then there's other parts of the church that are in the next 10 to 20 years, you know, face existential questions. We also had the opportunity to go to some unique places and explore some uncommon topics like what it's like to be a central intelligence agency officer in the field, what it's like to be a real-life criminal profiler in the FBI's famed behavioral analysis unit, and what it's like to be the cousin of a woman who is killed by a serial killer who hasn't been caught. Kent Kilsby a former CIA officer in the Philippines, the war on terrorism, and other locations, talked to us about the difficulties of working in a job where you're paid to lie and how hard it is to come back to your family, your coworkers, and others and not use that same mentality. Like we mentioned before, living undercover requires constant lying. Everything about you, everybody you deal with, becomes a lie, but it's totally up to you. And you've got to make the determination of who you believe can deal with it. And everybody makes different determinations. And those determinations, who you decide to share your secrets with, are crucial in your personal life and what happens to you in the future. Julia Cowley a retired FBI profiler, joined us for three episodes, two on what the real life of an FBI profiler was like, and another in the month of October about the real-life nightmare of the serial killer Israel Keys. Julia talked to us about the emotional toll of being a profiler. One of the many themes this year, both by myself and others, was vulnerability and a willingness to admit mistakes and how mistakes are a part of how we learn and how we grow. Well, I, I, I do my best, um, but I also, I mean, I have been wrong. I think that's what you have to be able, you have to admit when you're wrong. And that can be hard for people in law enforcement. We get so fixated and, and um, tied to our opinions and it's really hard to accept, oh, I was wrong. And, but, you know, you just go back and you, you, real, you figure out why you were wrong. And you're like, oh, okay, I'll know that for next time. And, and there's usually a very logical explanation for why you're wrong. And, and, um, and you know, you just, you, you move on and, and you admit it. But that's the one thing I'll say. It, there's just, there really is no certainty just with profiling alone. You cannot solve a case with profiling. Profiling has never solved any cases. If anyone says any different, that is not true. It's the investigators that solve the case. It's the entire investigation, every piece of it. A profile may help. It may, you may provide an interview strategy based on a profile you did of an offender and that may elicit a confession. That is helpful. Julia, 
also talked about the emotional toll of being immersed in violent crime. It might be the way that I'm wired because I didn't find the work in the behavioral analysis unit, at least for me, I didn't feel traumatized by it. I think I'm somewhat detached from it because I'm not the one processing the crime scenes or interviewing a victim or interviewing victims' families or interviewing the offender. I, I, I feel like I'm, I'm removed from that. And so I just found the work so interesting that I was just able to concentrate on it, not really get bothered by it. And although I'm a very sympathetic and empathetic person, it just never bothered me. And I think I was able to compartmentalize really well. And there's some things that I did just mental health wise in terms of I, I like to run. And when I was in the unit, my friend Susan and I would go for runs every morning and it was a time for us to talk. And sometimes we talk about work and sometimes we just talk about other things. And that was just very therapeutic for me. So I think running and I have a really great supportive family. And you had asked about, is there anything that the FBI does to kind of check, or at least not the FBI, but the agencies to check, you know, are, are you holding up mentally with the type of work you do? And then some cases within the the FBI, some of the jobs are more, are more stressful than others because you're exposed to violence or you're undercover and you're having to play a role and there's a lot of pressure and you're in a lot of dangerous situations. So one of the things the FBI has is what they call safeguarding. And this is you know, a, a yearly assessment of your mental health. And you go through testing and you talk to a psychologist and it's about a day or two of this mental health assessment. And when I went through, I had a psychologist had that I that spoke with me and he said that in terms of my testing, that I had a very Pollyanna-ish view of my life, that I had a really positive view of my life. It was very high in comparison um, to other people in law enforcement and the kind of work that I do. And he said normally he would be concerned about that, but I was also very high on the honesty scale, meaning I wasn't I wasn't answering questions to paint me in the best light. Yeah, so I was, I'm very familiar with that scale. <laughs> <laughs> right. So, I mean, I would answer questions that might make me look bad. And so he felt I was being really honest. And he asked me, why did I think that was? Why did I think that I was happy? And, <laughs> and I, you know, it was the first time I really thought about it. And I thought, you know, I just, and, and really I do think sometimes it's just like, what is going on in your head chemically, like just how you are wired. And I, I just suspect, felt- I have a suspicion that it's for some of the reasons, you know, that you, that you guys study when it comes to personality. Some people, you know, they're better adjusted. They have more resilience. So they're able to bounce back and things. Some people are so, you know, it has to do with values. You're so mission oriented that you may be able to jump back from things, or you're so interested in science or something along those lines that you're able to make things clinical and scientific. But I also wonder whether, like, are there some people who just can't, like, can only do two or three years in violent crimes or or yes, other yeah. things like that without, yeah. Tell me more about that. Yeah, I, I 
I think everyone is different. I, I remember working during what was it was a little bit after 9-11 and it was when I was part of the evidence response team for the FBI and we went down to New York and we were working in the New York City morgue and we were assisting with autopsies. Governor's Island or in the Yeah, it was it was the crash of flight five eighty seven and and we went down there from Boston to help supplement because they were, you know, the the FBI New York was um, evidence response team was so busy. They were at ground zero. They were out at fresh kills. So we went down to supplement it. And there were people on our team that had never been to a morgue, had never been to see an autopsy. And some of them who had, and it, it did affect them in a way that it didn't affect me. Um, I, I still have a, a former colleague who's still traumatized by the the two weeks that we spent down there. And, um, and then, you know, I had another colleague who could only spend a certain amount of time in the morgue, and then she would go out and, and work in a different area processing um, evidence that we were collecting off the bodies. Because at the time we were there, we weren't quite sure if it was a, another terrorist act or if it was an accident. And so we were there collecting evidence um, in the event that it turned out to be criminal and, and ultimately did not turn out to be criminal. But that's that's what we were doing. Is that the one that happened in November over? Yes. Well, yes. So you know, it's interesting you say that. Guess who was walking up and down the streets of that neighborhood that time? I got a knock on the door on my window. I was in my brownstone in Brooklyn, and my best friend, who was our, uh, also a reporter and lived across the street, started banging on my window, and he was like, get up, get out. I had fallen asleep on my couch, and we drove down there. And I actually think seeing seeing what I saw on that day was probably even more traumatic than me than for me than um, some of the, some of the other things I'd seen. Mm -hmm. uh, it's interesting. It's a small world. Yeah, it, it is a small world. Uh, it, but you know, I, I had come from a background where I had been to a lot of crime scenes. I had seen a lot of autopsies and so it didn't impact me and it, it, and I don't want to say it never has, because I think one of the things that was always difficult for me is occasionally when I was with the Tennessee Bureau of Investigation, we might get called out to a suspicious death and we weren't sure, or, or the, the investigators or, or local law enforcement wasn't sure if it was a suicide or a homicide. And you know, we would go and look at the scene and sometimes attend the autopsies. And when it turned out to be a suicide, and, th and this happened on a couple of occasions for me, I... I just, I, I just, I remember just looking at the people and thinking, what happened? You know, just feeling yeah. so bad that they came to that decision in their life and, and not quite understanding that. And I think that that kind of stuff gets to me. And I've worked homicide scenes where there's one case where an elderly couple were just sitting in their living room and some kids came by, wanted to steal their truck, and they shot and killed them in their living room. And there's there something were about the randomness and callousness yes. of life sometimes. Yeah, it's even scarier than the plan. If that, yeah, makes sense. it's it's exactly right. That's it's just you. It could be anybody. They they were very low risk, and they just had a a brand new red truck, 
And that's what put them at risk that day. And But I remember it was, this was in December and it was shortly before Christmas. I went into the guest room and they had all of their grandkids gifts wrapped and on the bed. And that hit me. It was hard. So I have those moments. A lot of personal effects can be very difficult. When Egypt Air crashed and I did participate on that, we had... Is that um, the one that was in New England where the pilot may have... Yes, yes. Um, it, 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 it was, uh, Egypt, Egypt air and it went down, um, off of Nantucket. And so I was part of the team that went to help collect the evidence and I was assigned to the morgue and there was an area of the morgue that we were putting all the personal effects of the victims out in a big warehouse. And we had tables and tables lined and there were backpacks and books and wallets and just, And that was really hard for me. Kevin Grogan, a former homicide detective in Savannah, Georgia, talked to us about the difficulties he had with the finality of murder. You go and you work as a as a professional. And I think anything you do, but especially law enforcement, because, you know, guys like me, I I had such an ego, such a, a type A guy. I wanted to go get the bad guys. When I was on patrol, I'm chasing everybody. When I'm in narcotics, I'm, you know, I'm going to get the big bust. I'm going to do these things. I'm going to make it to homicide. I make it to homicide. And then, and I thought I'd walk in there with my tights and my cape and be able to save the world. And the realization that you come to is people just die. Sometimes there's no explanation. And the explanation is I'm not smart enough or that connected with, again, whatever your higher power is. Sometimes it just is what it is. You can't fix it. You can't do anything about it. You just have to deal with it. Well, dealing with the fact that I couldn't fix it and I just had to deal with it was a killer for me. Our exploration of crime didn't end with that. We had two guests who played a role in the unsolved Lewis Clark Valley serial killings in Idaho and Washington, Gloria Boberts and Brandon Schrand. Gloria is the cousin of one of the victims of the killings, Christina Nelson, and Brandon is the host of the Snake River Killer podcast. Gloria talked to us about her pursuit of the killer and how it was inspired by the good that the victims brought into the world and the good she thought she could bring into the world by getting justice and ensuring that their killer would not harm others. I, I wanted to go ahead and just sort of like start with like a a question about sort of who makes you who you are. We've been talking about doing this for for several weeks, and I think there's been what a major fire in California and Oregon. And yeah, you've done animal animal rescue during that. You've helped with the volunteers about the base camp. I'm just curious, like what makes you who you are. I really, that's a good question. I've never really been asked that before. Um, I, I guess it was the way I was raised. My grandmother was, you know, primarily raised me. Not that my mom wasn't in the picture, but you know, you help people and, um, especially those that aren't as fortunate, so to say, or blessed. And, um, as far as uh, my cousin Christy, Christina Nelson, and uh, Brandy Miller, their lives should not have ended this way. So it made me 
angry. And so I decided to funnel that anger into something that would be helpful and useful for them. And it just kind of morphed. Brandon talked about the gifts he received from the victims who he had never met. Well, you know, that made me think of two things we were talking about before. Like one was when we were talking about for all of us who are doing something right now, there was someone out there who touched us, who inspired us. And in some ways, it sounds like the victims, even though they're long gone right now, are still touching and inspiring you. And then the other piece of it is like just thinking about that point that you had made about you know, the two deaths, the one when you die and then the one when people forget you. It's almost like you guys are holding hands and they're mm. touching and inspiring you at the same time you're keeping them alive. Like in a weird way, you and the victims are helping each other. I hadn't looked at it that way. Uh, that's a really interesting perspective. I'd have to think about that a little bit, but yeah, I, I I see I see some sense to that. That's a really kind of a surprising way to look at it. I hadn't thought of that. You know, for one thing, I'm you know one another way to look at that is how have the victims how have they helped me? I think that they've. So I have a 17 year old daughter. You know, she's on the cusp of being 18. There are two sides of this. One is when one of the things that made me so depressed is when you're dealing with looking at these terrible, brutal murders of young girls the same age as your daughter. It's hard for you not to put your daughter in that space of the narrative, right? But the other thing, too, is I cherish every day that, you know, I have with her because I know the fragility of life. And the victims have given me the gift of being present. Um, I don't know if that makes any sense at all, but makes complete sense. Yeah. It makes yeah. complete sense. Yeah. That's it. And it's powerful too. I think so much of, you know, like you talked about the decisiveness or some of the other things so much, if we could find a way to put ourselves in the shoes of others, I think so much in this world would be better. Right. You know? Yeah. And I, I think including situations like this. Our most shared episode on Spotify was with Macy Cox, a learning and development specialist at the National Science Foundation, who turned her breakdown at the beginning of the COVID-19 pandemic into an effort to get mental health resources to more than 4 million employees of the U.S. federal government. Yeah, and it's a it's a interesting thing in thinking about it because I I I think I can assume you're not fifty, so <laughs> not know, yet, not yet, right, not yet. But so for most of your life, even though your dad was diagnosed with bipolar, he was relatively stable, so it probably wasn't even really like a conversation that people right often had. And we didn't talk about it at all. Yeah, that's fascinating. And that's fascinating and interesting to me and potentially a warning sign for me. So I might incorporate that, <laughs> that well, idea. And it's like, so to the point of the diabetes, like you said with uh, your aunt or someone who has diabetes, with someone who has diabetes, we talk about that and we talk about the medication they use to treat the disease. 
why can't we talk about mental health and the medications we treat to, to, to our diseases that we treat to our diseases? We like to say at NSF, we all have mental health. It's true. We all have that. My friend, Victoria Grady, a business professor at George Mason University, who's conducted groundbreaking research on adult attachment, spoke about childhood and adult attachment, and then realized in our conversation, perhaps, her interest in the area was deeply linked to the loss of her first husband to cancer in her 20s. And the the normal pattern and the normal ties that exist that help you feel safe in the world. So you sort of went through a similar journey in looking at your transformation and realizing that these little things that sometimes we think, kind of like Bowlby's parents in the boarding school, think might be all helpful, um, kind of break these ties that that people have. Is that kind of like the underlying idea of sort of attachment that crosses over or it- it does. And Jason, I, I would be remiss if I didn't also mention, you know, one other aspect of this that I found um, that kind of it was like the perfect storm of of um, events coming together. So in um, after I had been married for about a year, my um, then husband was diagnosed with what would be what would end up being terminal cancer. And the interesting thing about that, the, the diagnosis that um, many of the, your listeners may have friends or family members who have had a, um, a scary diagnosis is mm-hmm. you don't really think as much about the diagnosis, right? Or we didn't. We were just like, okay, here's what we're going to do. We're going to move forward um, and we're going to make this, we're, we're going to beat it and it, you know, we're, we're going to work through it. Somebody, yeah, we almost need to, we have a, a need for action in those moments. Yeah, you know? exactly. And that's what you, we do. You're almost like a shark. If you're not moving in those moments, you're dying, I think. 100%. Well, during that, so interesting that you say that, somebody gave me a, a copy of a book called Who Moved My Cheese. Do you remember that book? I do. Uh-huh. It's actually on my bookshelf across from me. <laughs> no, it was, the, it was Who Moved My Cheese, right? Combined with the personal loss of and of course it was there was a, there's a lot of sadness around this but the one of the things that kept bringing up in my brain is wait 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 how did this happen i did i went to you know i did well in high school went to college you know got a master's degree i did all the things that i was supposed to do waited until i was old enough to make a good decision you know all that blah 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 how in the world is this happening to me and that's why my friend sent me the book who moved my cheese so i started who moved my cheese you know your personal situation and then the workplace and how these you know these small changes or are seemingly small changes like an introduction of a new technology i mean it rocks your world we also turned to my former profession in journalism several times, and the scandal I created by fabricating and plagiarizing stories. We discussed what better journalism would look like for minorities with my former colleague at the New York Times, John Wesley Fountain. John, who also worked for the Chicago Tribune and the Chicago Sun-Times, told listeners about a story of a black child who had been mauled by dogs in St. Louis. There was a story as a kid. His name was uh, Rodney McAllister. I was still at the Times at the time, and I had, uh, this young man had been, he was uh, about eight years old, 
and or nine years old, and he was uh, living in St. Louis, Missouri. The story is that Rodney's mother had, had apparently had some drug issues and she had recovered. But Rodney was a kind of man child taking care of his mom and, and his family. And one night Rodney didn't come home. His mother thought that he was perhaps staying with relatives mm. or friends. It turns out the next morning, a gentleman in St. Louis is getting ready and the neighborhood is getting ready to go to work. He sees some dogs making a ruckus and he goes over to investigate. And it is the body of a little boy. The dogs have mauled him to death and begun to eat, eat his body. So I be- made a few calls, you know, as a correspondent, a national correspondent. We are the eyes and ears of the Times readers and so on. Nothing else was really going on at the time. I call my editors in New York and I say, hey, I got the story. I break it down to them. I've already done my preliminary reporting. You know, they've got a rally scheduled. This this killing or the death of this child has uh, galvanized the community. They're saying, how could this happen? We thought we were okay. This will never happen again. And this is just really a story about how Rodney McAllister fell through the cracks and what this has done to this community and the hope, the future, and so on. So they give me the green light to go and do the story. I'm getting ready to go to the airport, and I get a call from an editor who shall remain nameless. (laughs) Probably not the same editor. (laughs) And and he says, John, um, they don't want you to do the story. And I said, why not? I said, why not? Exactly. And he said, I I don't want to say. I said, come on. You don't want me to do the story. What, what's the problem? Finally, after some tussle, verbal tussle, he says, they say we already have a dog story. What? That's what they said. And what was the dog story? The dog story was uh, about an elderly couple in California who um, had apparently been attacked by pit bulls. They survived. But this wasn't a dog story. Yes, it was not a story about dogs at all, at all. It was all. a story about a little black boy. Being lost. And in all our... those things that I that I just talked about. And so I say in, in starting West Side Press, that is the day it was born. Because I said no editor would ever tell me again what a story is and the stories that I get to tell. John went on to give advice to editors, and to readers. I would say the most important thing is to remember that there are no urban stories, no suburban stories, no rural stories, no black stories, white stories. They're only human stories. And so they may have different faces. They may have different dynamics, different elements, but it is a human story. And it is important if we're going to purport that journalism is essential to democracy, that you know, people are rational human beings and they're capable of discerning truth, then we need to present that truth as journalism. And if we don't do that in its totality, then journalism is a lie. We explored the law with Bob Mata, a defense attorney and the host of the Defense Diaries podcast. Bob talked to us about the importance of defense attorneys to protecting our constitutional rights and freedoms. And, you know, it, it's a soul crushing profession. It is. Yeah. It's, it's like there's the amount of weight that you carry as a defense attorney in particular. I don't know that there's any profession on the planet that you carry that much weight. And it's in the sense that 
I have the weight of the world on my shoulders in the sense that I am representing somebody who's either life and or liberty is at stake. And in our lives, aside from health, I don't know that there's anything more important than those two things. And obviously life and health intertwined, but that liberty side of it in terms of, you know, if they're looking at, you know, a term in prison or whatever the case may be, it's a lot to deal with. It's like it was like putting aside the horrors of the case itself, just understanding what's at stake and the fact that you can never turn it off. Our most listened to episode was The Scales of Justice, a two-part episode with Brett Talley and Alice LaCour of The Prosecutor's Podcast. That episode took a surprising turn when we explored the human experience and our need for community. Alice talked about the universality of loneliness and the importance of human connection. And also, here's the thing. The human experience can be incredibly lonely until you realize that there are so many more commonalities and there are things that divide us, right? I mean, Brett and I, like, just looking at us on the outside and knowing our backgrounds, we probably couldn't be two more different people. He is, like, my best friend. And if we chose to only put ourselves into, you know, boxes that divided us, then we would miss out on a beautiful friendship, a beautiful work relationship, and like this amazing podcast experience that, you know, is is truly been a highlight um, for both of us in our lives. And so I think there's nothing that you really can lose by being vulnerable. I have learned that even in the courtroom. A lot of people think that by hiding your vulnerability, you show strength, but I think it's the opposite. By showing vulnerability, you are choosing to take the first step to extend out and to reach out into the void and say like, hey, life is hard. Let's go through this together. Brett talked about vulnerability, suffering, and the importance of community. One of the things that unites us is we all suffer. You know, suffering is sort of a universal thing. And that's another example of that sort of vulnerability you talk about, being willing to say that because that is such an opposite of our social media culture. Our social media culture is project happiness and perfection at all times. You know, like curate your Facebook pages, use the right filters on Instagram, like whatever it is. And I think we need community <laughs> in our country and probably just in our entire world more now than ever because so many of the traditional communities people relied on have broken down. We just don't have them. And people are so isolated and alone. And we never imagined. I mean, I thought maybe one day, you know, maybe we'll do this. will be really successful and a lot of people will listen. Wouldn't that be amazing? Wouldn't that be great? Never imagined the community aspect of it. In one of the most emotional episodes, Danny Brillhart and Colton Jones of the band Nico talked to us about how their music has become their therapy. Yeah, I think every everything we make and create is like ends up being some form of therapy. I mean, we have songs that we've written that like haven't seen the light of day, or songs that have taken completely different forms. Like uh, this is much much different than what you mentioned, but you know we wrote a song that we was called "The Difference," and it was actually originally about um, a really toxic situation that we were in with a person that we both trusted and. You know, and we, you know, we wrote the song about like how we thought that we could love someone through them, like treating us poorly. Wrote the song, whatever, didn't think much of it. Well, a year later, we, you know, 
were entered in this this thing to be on the, a part of the TV show called the American Song Contest. And that song was submitted and the producers and stuff really loved the song. And we ended up rewriting the song to have a, a kind of a different meaning to, to go along more with uh, our message in the show. But it's just crazy because like that song was so therapeutic for us in its original form. And, you know, it still ended up reaching people in a completely different way than we meant for it to ever reach people. Like yes. we honestly would have never, I think we had put the demo of the song on YouTube, like saying it, the original Maybe. version or something like that. But, but like it was we, like a closed book for us. Yeah. Like it's done. And so it's, you know, I think that's the thing about art, like writing, singing, filming, doing anything is it's like you might have your own things that you need for therapy and then someone else could get something completely different from it. And that's kind of the beauty in it. Danny, who is white, and Colton, who is black, also talked to us about how their love helped them power through racism. Oh, um, yeah, everything you said. It was uh, definitely a decision that we, like, first of all, being together, we didn't think twice about because we just like loved each other. I think the world told us before we knew that it was something we should think about, if that makes sense. I think, uh, oh, this is, I'm trying to like figure out how to, like, as soon as we started becoming um, more front facing on the internet, like, I think the first comment we ever got that was racially motivated, that's like a nice way to put that. Um, it crumbled me, like absolutely wrecked me. And I think seeing Colton's calmness about it was equally infuriating, heartbreaking, eye-opening, because I think to him, he's like, this is old news. Like I'm, I had never experienced anything like that. He's like, please, this is child's play. Like I'm, I've heard and seen so much worse. And I was like, holy, like this is, I had no idea this was this. And I think I didn't know there was anything to know before getting into the relationship and being like, wait, 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 people care who I'm dating because we don't look this. I don't know. It was just such a weird. And of course, we all like we hear very little. I'm from Georgia as well. So like, quite frankly, we didn't hear a ton about racism growing up. And I just like it wasn't on the forefront of my mind because I'm a Caucasian female. Why would it? You know, for some people, our conversations, they said, were in and of themselves, in fact, therapy. Robert Palmer, the host of the Broken Systems podcast, was one of those who said he felt that way. I was expected to be on my own from an early age. So, you know, at seven years old, I'm at home, you know, taking care of myself, you know, cooking breakfast, spending the day at home. You know, I, I had a job at 11 years old, not because I had to work, but I got to the point that I was so self-sufficient on myself that I felt like I needed to work so I didn't have to burden anybody else with it. And that's kind of, that's kind of dictated my whole life. And with that, I felt like I never, because I was at home alone a lot of times, I didn't have that voice. I wasn't able to, to tell people, this is how I feel. This is the things that are bothering me. This is the things that I need for me to be healthy. And I just internalize those things. So I feel like being able to do this and being able to get DJ's story out there also helps me externalize my issues. Three episodes with Jason Ursi were ostensibly on writing, but they really were on hope and healing and how his true crime satire podcast, Santa May Be a Criminal, has created a safe space for all sorts of people. I'm I'm playing a character effectively 
but the DNA of that character is who I am. You know, the, there is part of that character that is a put on for the show, but most of that character is me. It's it, the curiosity that that character has, the love that that character has, the naivety that that character has sometimes, the love of the 80s for sure, you know, is is me. So it's it's that kind of thing that has helped me sort of grow the show and for people to really feel, I think that they understand that there's a vulnerability to what I'm trying to accomplish. And I think that makes people feel that they can come and speak to me because they feel like no matter who they are, what they are, what they want, that they're going to be accepted and, and cared about. And so at least I hope that's what they think. Echoing Jason, that's what I hope this podcast has become for so many people. If you'd like to join us for more discussions with us and other listeners, we can be found on most social media platforms, including a listener-run Facebook group called the Silver Linings Fireside Chat. For deeper conversations with our guests and live conversations with other listeners, you can also join us at our Patreon at www. Dot p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com forward slash the silver linings handbook this is jason blair this is the silver linings handbook podcast we'll see you all again next year <laughs>